You're listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly interviews on topics to help entrepreneurs make their first or next step in business the right one. I am your host, Alex Sanfilippo. When you have an idea for a business, product, or service, do you ask the people who will become your potential customers good questions to know if you're building the right business? It turns out that most of us are asking the wrong questions completely. Today's guest is Rob Fitzpatrick. He's the founder of Write Useful Books, an online community and software that helps aspiring authors to get their books done. He is also the author of the book titled The Mom Test. And in this episode, Rob teaches us how to ask questions so good that your mom couldn't even lie to you by giving you answers to make you feel supported, which is a mom's job, of course. The point is for us to learn to ask questions that will help the future development of our business product or service. In this episode, Rob explains there's a specific way to go about doing this. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 132. And now let's not wait any longer. Here's my conversation with Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm excited about this too. Actually, when we were talking offline, I, I referred to you as a genius. I don't know <laughs> if you necessarily... Uh, uh, if that reciprocated well with you or not. But uh, man, <laughs> after reading this book, The Mom Test, I really just, I, I feel like you've explored some concepts and some ideas that other people just have not gotten into. I've never heard this stuff anywhere else before. So uh, really impressed by it. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. My experience was I was an introverted techie trying to learn sales. And this is going to ring true for so many technical founders, right? Because you're building a tech product, you want a tech team, but at a certain point, you need to go talk to people. And I was reading all these sales books, I was reading all the customer research books, and I felt like they were written for natural extroverts who already had these baseline skills. And it was telling them how to go from average to amazing. And I was like, I need to go from terrible to average. <laughs> and so like after I eventually figured it out, and unfortunately, I, I was so slow moving that the first business failed. But when I figured it out in my, my subsequent businesses, I was like, yeah, this is such a valuable idea. It's like putting basically the, the, the sales language and the sales skills in, in, in a format that someone like me, like a techie, an introvert, can actually understand and act on. And, and yeah, the book's gotten a good response. A lot of people seem to find it helpful. Yeah. And so for me, I'm actually, I have a sales background. So talking to people, all that was really, has always been very easy for me. But after reading your book, I discovered that I've been asking some really bad questions just because I like to talk. And I, <laughs> I, listen, we all like our ideas, right? Like maybe too much. What, what, was, what was the blunder you were falling into? I would jump straight into my idea. Like I go straight into pitch mode, I think is what you actually refer to it as. Yeah. And we'll, we'll dive in that a little bit here. Uh, but yeah, that's that's basically where I'd start going is just straight into pitching people <laughs> without meaning to like be salesy, but I would just jump straight into it and I'd ask questions, but they're all mm. probing of like reinforce my idea is basically what I would jump into. Yeah, especially in the early days when you're when you're figuring out if a business is worth working on in the first place, whether it's worth the opportunity cost, and also if, if you're building the right thing in the right way. Sales is such a double-edged sword because sometimes you can convert a client by using your founder's superpower, you know, your charisma, your presence, and you can get them over the line. But then there's one of them and you don't actually have a business. You have a consulting business that in your head, you're pricing like a startup. So it's never going to be profitable because you've got productized price points, but consulting based, you know, service levels. Uh, so, yeah, it's really hard, especially in Europe. For some reason, this seems like a much more common trap for founders in Europe than in America. I'm not sure why. That's interesting. You know, it, it makes me also think of churn rate, which basically means the amount of turnover you're having in, in your customers. Yes, being a good salesperson, I can probably get someone like forcefully, 
ish, <laughs> right? To to sign on to what I'm doing, but they might not hang around long if it doesn't actually solve what they need it to. And by me just pitching doesn't really work. But anyway, getting ahead of ourselves here, uh, I'm excited to jump into this today. I know it's going to be very beneficial for the listeners as well. So thank you for taking the time to write this book and get it out to the world, Rob. I really I really appreciate it. It was a blast. I mean, when I wrote it, it was eight years ago. I was like, I hope one person reads this and gets value. And you know, now now more than one has read it. So that, that's nice. To yes, see. I've, I noticed <laughs> that. It seems like it's done very well. My friend James was actually the one who introduced me to it. So anyway, excited to jump in this topic and talking about how to figure out if your business is a good idea is what we're talking about. And we'll just get started in, in chapter one of the book, which is titled The Mom Test. Can you first off explain what the mom test is? So people say, you've probably heard this, don't ask your mom if your business is a good idea because she loves you and she loves everything you do and she wants to support you. I'm right. told this is a somewhat American worldview, but like my mother was always incredibly supportive and, and everything I did, she's like, yes, it's amazing. You're going to be a huge success with this. And so that's not honest feedback, right? It's biased, but it's biased in the positive direction, but you're still not going to, that's not validation when, when someone bias says something nice. And people say, don't ask your mom. But what I realized the hard way is that actually everyone is biased to some extent because of the superpower of being an entrepreneur, which is that people want to support you because they love what you're doing. They love that you're going out and taking the risk, that you're putting it on the line, that you're trying to make your dreams come true for, for yourself, for the world, for whatever. They want to help you and they want to support you. And, and the downside of that, the, the upside is you can get investors, you can get your first employee, you can get partners, you can get press exposure. The, the downside is that you get lied to in a very friendly, supportive, encouraging way. And so the reason it's called the mom test is stop expecting other people to tell you the truth and instead control the context, frame the conversation, ask the questions in such a way that no one can lie to you because you've taken responsibility for the truth. And when you do it right, you can even have a good learning conversation with the most biased person, your own mom, you know, only if she's in your customer segment. But uh, right. and, and the major things you do is you stop asking about your idea. You, you mentioned you kept falling into pitching first, starting with the pitch. As soon as you pitch your idea, you're introducing all these positive biases. You're like, oh, I'm so excited. I, I've been thinking about this for years. I finally quit my job. I'm doing it. What do you think? Be honest. That is impossible. <laughs> right. You know, and even if you're not quite as exaggerated as that, people still know that your ego's on the line and your heart's on the table. And so they pull their punches. They don't know. And even if they try to tell you the truth, you're asking them outside of a buying and a usage context. And so even if they really try to tell you the truth, they still end up lying. And you can't build a business like that and you can't validate it. So instead, you try to understand them. What are they already doing and why? Look for specifics in the past instead of hypotheticals in the future. You want to understand them like you understand your close friends. And when you're buying your close friends a birthday present, you're able to surprise them with something they love because you understand them. And the, that's the level of understanding you're trying to get to with your customers, where, where, where you get their worldview, you get their goals, their frustrations. For example, a common question that's really important is why haven't they already solved this problem? Why aren't they already using your competitor's product? That's an important thing to understand. Uh, and it's all about them. It's not about your product. It's all about them. Uh, and you can get that completely free of bias. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Right before, I shouldn't even say it's funny. The night before I started reading this book, I read it on a Friday. And on Thursday night, I posed a question to 1,500 people in one of my communities and uh, guess what? You, you probably already know it was, a, it was a bad question. It was one of, hey, guys, I've been working on this for a lot of time. I'm really excited about it. I want to get your feedback is basically exactly how I asked. And like you said, I, I went back after reading the book. I'm like, man, every single person was like, oh, congrats. I love that you're doing this. I, I didn't learn anything from it. And <laughs> before reading your book, though, I thought that that would actually be true validation that I would need. Yeah. 
So that, that can still be beneficial as a marketing tactic, right? Because you're building momentum pre-launch, you're building the enthusiasm, you're, you're getting leads who are, who are kind of, by that comment, they're giving you permission to contact them again, potentially directly to learn more. So there's certainly still value in that. It's just not validation, right? Because it, it's, right. it, it's a different type of, of value. So ideally, you do both things. I, I was talking to some founders, you know, similar to you, they had a big audience and they tried to use their own audience because it was convenient to validate their new business. They got completely lied to, lost two years doing something they thought was, people even paid them. And, and after the business failed, it's like, dude, why did you pay me? You never used the product. And they go, oh, I, I just received so much value from all the knowledge you share. I wanted to give something back. And so there was even money that was lying to them in that case. Uh, and so it's like, and they asked me, they said, should I have not used my audience? And I was like, no, use your audience for marketing, for growth, for momentum, but don't use your existing audience for learning. Uh, or you have to be extremely careful about the way you set up the questions because they're, they're just, it's, it's like, they're basically family, right? They, they want you to succeed. Right. Yeah. You know, I want to dive a little bit deeper into one of these points that you're, you're sharing here, which is the idea of talking about their lives instead of your ideas. I think that the fear for many of us is how are we actually going to get anything constructive out of a conversation if we don't lead with our idea? Because conventional wisdom says, tell people your idea and see what they think. But you're saying, just talk to them and then see how your idea fits into it. But can you talk about that point a little bit more? Yeah, there's, there, you need them to be talking about the right thing. Okay, so if you're serving freelancers and you want to help freelancers with invoicing, let's say something in that space, if you talk to a freelancer and you just if you leave it too open ended, you say, just tell me about your life. That's not going to be a useful conversation because 90% plus is going to be irrelevant to what you're trying to deal with in your business. So the way I like to frame it, uh, I, I call it vision framing weakness pedestal ask, and it's you need to open this safe space where you're allowed to ask about their life and you've given them a reason for the conversation that isn't a pitch, a demo or a sale. So, and not everyone will say yes to this, but enough people do that you can get a representative sample, which applies to the rest of the customers. And so an example might be, you give them the vision, not the product, not the pitch, but the vision. Hey, I'm trying to improve invoicing for freelancers. That's enough. Now, is that a service business? Is this an education business? Is it a book? Is it technology? Is it a debt collection agency? You haven't told them what the product is, but you've given them like a grand vision. Hey, I'm trying to improve education for at home or uh, for whatever, uh, homeschoolers. It's like, okay, vision. Uh, and then the, the, the framing, the context is like, I'm super early. I don't have anything to sell. Uh, but, and then you do this combination of lift them up on a pedestal and lower yourself by exposing weakness. So you say, listen, you've been homeschooling for four years or you've been freelancing for 10 years. You've got so much experience with this. And I've been having such a hard time understanding how people like you think about this issue. Would you mind just taking me 10 minutes to talk me through how you've done this in the past? It would help me out so much and I'd really appreciate it. And they go, wow, this does a couple of things. One, I know it's not a pitch meeting. This is important. Secondly, they're going to feel comfortable talking about their life if they agree to the meeting. Not everyone does, but enough people do. They're going to feel comfortable because you've given them a reason for it. If you try to say a common mistake I see is like is giving no context and saying, hey, can we just can I just pick your brain for 10 minutes? Nobody says yes to that because right. they think you're either going to be a time waster. You don't know what you need or that you're going to try to transition and take advantage of them once they're on the phone into a pitch, into an hour long call, into something. If you can be really clear cut about and 
Another thing it does is it shows that you understand them in particular and that you're not looking for commoditized knowledge that you could have Googled. You're looking for life experiences that they in particular have. And people love that. They feel flattered. If you say to me and you say like, hey, Rob, I'm trying to what interview men between the ages of 18 and 40 about something. I was like, I don't care. You should have Googled that. If you're like, hey, Rob, like you had this really specific experience that would help me out so much. That's a much easier and more exciting conversation for me to have because people want to feel valuable and they want to help entrepreneurs. Uh, but they don't want to have their time wasted and they don't want to be tricked. So you're like you're trying to set that up. Yeah, man, I, I love that. There's a quote from the book that I really enjoy on the same point here, which is the big mistake that almost everyone makes is to mention your idea too soon rather than later. And if you can avoid mentioning your idea, you automatically start asking better questions. I think that that's just a really powerful point that really just kind of furthers what you're saying here with us right now. Yeah, you need to give them a reason for the conversation, but not the full pitch. And sometimes they ask, they go, they go, oh, like, so you're working on something to help freelancers with invoicing. And you go, yes, and I would honestly be so excited to tell you about it. But first, you were saying something I was really curious about. Would you tell me more about what happened with this client? And you bring it back into a specific in the past. You deflect the pitch to the future because you basically want to do your learning first and then your pitch second. You can still do your pitch. It's just you want this safe space of learning first. Uh, and in some cases, you, you realize you're talking to the wrong person. And then why would you even give them the pitch? That's not going to work. That's not a good use of anyone's time, right? Then just politely let them go. Uh, but if they seem really keen, then you can ask for permission to transition. And it's just a nicer way to deal with people. And it works brilliantly online as well. It works so well with communities because people join communities and talk about their problems. And you can really easily transition from those kind of expressions of, hey, I'm suffering with this or, hey, I have this question. You can really easily transition that into a live call or you can solve their problem there, or you can give them the demo. There, there's a lot of ways to tack Custav on top of a community. Hey, Alex Sanfilippo here, and I wanna take a quick moment to intentionally serve the world with you. Here's what I want you to do. Think of the one person you know who would most benefit from listening to this episode today. Now, I want you to send it to them, but also include an encouraging note explaining why you share this episode with them specifically. By doing this, you're helping me grow this podcast, and you're also adding value to the people you care about. With that said, thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. And now, let's get back to today's episode. I want to shift this conversation to another point that you make in the book. This is actually from chapter two, which you talk about avoiding bad data. How do we identify and avoid this bad data? If people are saying lots of nice things about you or your idea, you've probably screwed up something in the conversation earlier. So, wow, it's so innovative. Wow, I've never seen anything like this before. Wow, this is going to be so successful. Notice all of these are compliments, but none of them are expressions of intent to purchase or use. So this is a really... This is kind of the way the flirtation goes. Uh, it's like getting a fake phone number at a bar. It's like, it's like doing the dance, but you're not actually getting anywhere. Uh, and so you pitch your idea. They say something nice. Everyone's happy. Nothing happens it is the expected outcome. So whenever people are making me feel good, I'm kind of like, I get suspicious. Like, I'm like, wow, this person really loves what I'm doing. Like compliments, they throw up a warning flag. And I'm like, wait, what did I say that caused this compliment to appear? And usually it's my fault in the way I asked the questions a little bit ago, but then you, you can fix it. You notice that excitement. You go, oh, sorry, hold on. I got excited and I started pitching. My mistake. Listen, I was super curious, but you know, how do you deal with this? Or what did you do last time this happened? And you can bring it back to specifics in the past, what they're already doing and why. And why not? 
Like, if, if you're building an app for exercising at home with bodyweight fitness or something, it's like, why aren't they already exercising? Like, why aren't they watching YouTube videos and doing it? Like, understanding non-consumption is just as important as understanding consumption. Uh, anytime they give a hypothetical commitment, I would, I might, I will. I definitely would. In some ways, the more enthusiastic they are, the more suspicious I become. I would definitely buy that. Oh, uh, well, it's not ready yet, but if you wanted to put down a small deposit, I'll get you in the first group. It's like, oh, no, 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 I'll just wait until it's out. Uh, but uh, send me an email, <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, they're not that interested, right? They just got excited. And that's still nice. They want to support you. They may help in other ways. They may become a mainstream customer in the future, but they're probably not one of your earliest adopters. And you probably shouldn't be basing your launch decisions on them because they're not one of your early adopters. They're a mainstream adopter at best. So for me, I'm just going to talk about my ego for a minute here. Uh, let's imagine I start this conversation off with somebody in the right way. Like Rob, like I'm doing a good job. Like I'm asking the right questions. I'm, I'm talking that you even say this in the book. If, if you're doing most of the talking, you're doing it wrong, right? This applies to sales as well. I'm sure you heard this in your sales training. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but if, if I've got them doing most of the talking, but then they, I just realize it aligns so well with the idea I have for my business that I just go straight into pitch mode again, where I'm like, man, well, let me tell you about <laughs> this idea. And like, I kind of just spill the beans, if you will. Is, is at that point, is it a total loss? You kind of hinted at this already, or is there a way to get that back on track? And if so, like, how can I recover from my ego just jumping in there and taking over? Because I think a lot of us will get this point because we're excited about what we're doing, right? So yeah. like the desire to jump in and start sharing it prematurely, <laughs> I think hap I like to think it happens to most of us. The way I recover is I, I just throw my hands in the air and I go, whoops, my bad. I got excited. Sorry about that. And then, and then I, you know, I anchor back to something they said earlier or some other question I had. Uh, but if they're truly excited and you understand them, then by all means, go into the pitch, right? Because if you can get a customer, that's better than an interview. And it depends what stage your business is at. When you're in the earliest stages and you don't know quite what you're building and you're not actually ready to onboard customers yet, and you're not sure if you're really going to commit to the idea, you're just trying to feel out, like, is this really a big need? Do they have budgets? Are they, are they motivated? In that case, there is no pitch, right? Because if you pitch, you're just kind of uh, getting yourself in trouble because then you're committing to stuff that you're not ready to commit to yet. And so in that case, yeah, you just kick it back to the learning. Um, but yeah, if you're later stage, if you're ready to onboard people or at least take pre-orders or deposits or even introductions or even a next meeting that has a clear purpose for you to walk through the wireframes and the usage details and, and they're keen, yeah, by all means. Now, you need to be a little bit careful to be respectful, because if you set up the meeting the way I talked about earlier, where it's like, hey, we're not ready to sell. This is not a pitch. Then and then you suddenly are like, let me pitch you. Uh, that's kind of disingenuous and can 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 burn the relationship. And so in those cases, you go like you have to ask for permission to transition and you need to give people you need to set it up in a way for to make it comfortable where the default answer is no. So if you think about a pushy salesperson, they're always trying to get you to say yes, and they're making it difficult for you to leave. And that's uncomfortable. When those people come up to you on the street to try to get you to donate to their charity, that's a very uncomfortable interaction because they, they don't allow you to say no without being rude. That's, that's kind of their trick. And, but that burns relationships. Like you're never going to go get a beer with one of those people afterwards because you don't like them right. even after that one 30 second interaction, uh, because they, they, they've mistreated you in your time. And, and so when I ask for the transition, I say like, hey, like completely no pressure. You've already helped me out so much. Uh, as you know, we are building a product in this space. It sounds like it would be super relevant for you. Uh, 
if you're ever interested in hearing about it, I would absolutely love to talk you through it and hear what you think. And then you, you sort of put that out there and, and most people will go, oh, that's really interesting. Thank you, I'll let you know. Cool, you made it a no by default. You made it very comfortable for them to opt out. Whereas some people, the most excited will say, hey, I've got another 10 minutes now. Is that enough time? I'd love to see it. And then you go, aha. And that in and of itself is a pretty cool commitment, right? Because they've, they've volunteered more of their time to learn about what you're doing as opposed to being pushed into it or tricked into it. And you've kept the relationship healthy because uh, you, you, know, you haven't mistreated them or, or misled them. Do you find that doing all this, because I, I love what you're sharing here, do you find that it, it can be difficult to keep your head in the right space all the time? Because what you're talking about kind of seems like it could be a lot, right? Like making sure you're asking the right questions, knowing when you can transition into a into a pitch, like remembering to be kind in, in, in and <laughs> right? Like, which that should be easy for all of us, but it's not always. Um, but do you, do you find that like get, getting your head around all this is a lot of work? Or is this something that you find that just naturally people were able to do? It, it, it's definitely not natural, but it's very learnable. And it's easier than you would think because you're not trying to be clever. You're not trying to tell a beautiful story. You're just trying to be a good friend. You're trying to be interested in a human being and, and to understand their life. This is the way that we build friendships and relationships is, is we take an interest in another person. We, like if, uh, if you were meeting your best friend or anyone, anyone, any potential friend, right? And they just had something, they have some problem in their life. They got fired, they got dumped, they, they're, they're, they've got bad health. You wouldn't go, thank you for meeting with me tonight. On a scale of one to five, how much of a problem right. is your poor health? You know, like that, that's this like for, formal surveying thing. That's not how you build relationships or friendships. The, the way you would do that with a human is you go, that sucks. Tell me everything. Like, what are you feeling? What are you doing? What are you trying? What does this mean for you? And they'll talk and you'll listen. And obviously that, that, that requires a pretty trusting, open, safe space. But if you can create that space and if you can be honest, then it's a conversation you've had a million times already with everyone you've ever been friends with. It's very natural. And once people realize that, once they bring down the shields of formality, of officialness, of trying to convince them with an amazing sales pitch and switch into, let me just try to understand your problems and your life and your goals. Uh, as soon as that clicks, people are naturally good at it. Everyone's naturally good at it. It's just breaking down these preconceptions we have that are working against us. And the other thing I would say in, in terms of practical tips, early on, if you can bring a buddy, it helps a lot. And basically have one person asking questions, have the other person taking notes and jumping in if it goes off track. So they're, they're, they're kind of your safety, you know? You're doing gymnastics and they're there ready to catch you. And, and you respect that. You know that if they jump in, it's because you're screwing something up. And, and you let them be like, wait, a second ago you were saying something. Sorry for jumping in. Can we just talk more about that? And it's like, whoops, yep, I was slipping into the pitch. And this is kind of the training wheels for these conversations is to bring a buddy. If you're a solo founder, just team up with another founder. Go to each other's. Totally fine. If that's not viable, the second best option is to um, take good notes and review the notes later with someone else. Because when you go through them and you kind of replay the conversation, don't just say, it went great. They loved it. Probably you got lied to. Right. Actually walk through the conversation, a condensed version. You know, I said this, they said this, they said this is a big issue, they're doing this about it. They said the thing's amazing, but I set that up because I kind of pitched a little bit. And when you do this, it's like reviewing a chess game you've played. You start to notice your mistakes and then you make them less frequently. I think this is just like such a powerful concept you have here. Like the idea of 
being empathetic toward another human being, like treat them as your friend versus like a formal meeting that you're walking into. I think that having that mindset really helps. That's a, a great key that you shared there. And then you yeah, having some other feedback in it. Brilliant. I think that's so important to do. You get another perspective. You get someone who can help keep you on track. Really important. And I think that actually something from the third chapter of your book would really be a great follow-up to this because I think it would really help people out. It's where you talk about asking important questions. And you talk about always listing your top three, right? Or have your list of three, as you call it specifically in the book. Can you talk about this list of three and how we can practically add this to whatever it is that we're trying to do? Yeah, I, I, I saw two different types of mistakes with both my own customer interviews and also the, the the ones I was seeing from other people. One was to be way too open-ended, like too fluffy, too soft. And the conversation's friendly and easy, but you never get into any serious topics. You like you leave and you're like, that was a fun conversation, but you haven't actually learned anything that allows you to make the next set of critical product and business decisions. And ultimately the reason you're doing these conversations is to basically guide your strategy, your product strategy, your business strategy. And it's meant to be de-risking it in the same way that say running A-B tests or looking at cohort analytics. It's giving you data that allows you to make a next set of hard choices. And you can then make those choices with confidence because you actually have data. And you're doing that, it's just it's qualitative data. So being too soft is a mistake, too open-ended, too fluffy. But then the other end is like being question one of 20, you know, and going through kind of the formal survey process. And in those cases, what I noticed is that for the customer, it's a really boring conversation because no one likes to be asked 20 questions and right. it's just not fun for them. And if it's not fun for them, they're not going to introduce you to any other customers and they're not going to want to take the next meeting with you. What's fun for people is the way you talk to your friends at the bar, right? It's like, tell me about your life. And they're like, oh, this crazy stuff happened. And, and they, they love talking about, people love talking about their problems. What they don't love is like going through a list of survey questions. So that is part of it. And the solution I found is to pick three, I, I should have used in the book, I should use three topics as the way I describe it rather than three questions, because it might be something like budgets, current solution, and why they aren't already using our competitor's product. Those would be the three topics. So they're not like questions that you rattle off verbatim, but they're topics you want to explore. And it might be 10 minutes of the conversation on each of these topics, you know, and you have a 30 minute chat and it's nice and it flows, but you know that learning the answer to those three questions would be important for your business. It'll allow you to make better decisions in the future. And early on, these tend to be really open-ended or like big picture, let's say. It's like, do they care at all? Do they have a budget? And like, who needs to sign off on this purchase? It's like pretty big picture, basic stuff. Later on, it's like, ooh, is this feature so critical that we need to include it in version one? Or can we delay this feature till version two? Or like, should it be priced by usage or priced by month? So as you get the big questions answered, you, you're moving into more and more focused questions. Not every question can be answered through customer interviews. Some of them will need to be answered through product prototypes or user testing or sales or you combine all the learning tools in your toolkit, but, 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 but customer interviews can get you to a lot and they have the benefit of being extremely time efficient once you learn how to set them up and run them properly. The reason I like these three questions and having, or three topics, however you want to look at it, is it gives you an idea of what you're walking into. So for me, as somebody who's just going to walk into a conversation just to be friendly with somebody else, I would have a hard time maybe keeping on track. But mm -hmm. by having these three things I have to hit on, it helps me know, okay, I can interject number two right now. Like the second thing I was going to talk about, like I can go ahead and ask that now because it's appropriate. It's in the conversation. I like that it gives people a great framework to jump into. 
it, one follow-up to this, actually my favorite quote in the book that you mentioned is that you said you should be terrified of at least one of the questions you're asking. Uh, I think that that's pretty intense. Can you talk about that a little bit more, like why some of these questions should be a little bit more intense maybe? Yeah, I mean, I noticed that this, this was really kind of advice given to myself <laughs> that I, I would notice that when a conversation was going well, I would find myself emotionally reluctant to say something or ask something that would give the other person the opportunity to show me that they actually didn't care. Mm. So, so for example, you're having a great conversation about the innovation and the future of the industry and how cool this is and how important it is. A scary question might be like, what do the budgets look like for this? Or I'm going to need to talk to your lawyers before you can sign off on this, right? Like, would you be comfortable making that introduction? Uh, in some cases, it blurs into the, the commitments and the salesy questions. And in other cases, it's just like, for example, is this legal? Or like, this is going to take a lot of effort from your whole team, and it's going to require executive buy-in. Is that viable? And they go, they go, ah, no, honestly, like, it's something I would love so much. But I mean, realistically, the board is never going to, you know, put the time we need into this to train all the frontline staff. And you go, oof, that's rough. But it's actually, the, it, there's a little mental flip you need to do where um, my favorite metaphor about writing books is from E.L. Doctorow. And it, it goes, writing a book is like driving a car at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can do the whole trip that way. And I love this because to me, for business, for books, whatever, you, you don't see the whole journey, but you know where you're trying to get to and you can see the next, you know, the, the next few steps. And then you can navigate like that. But also you have to have your headlights turned on, right? Because sometimes like you're like, oh, I don't want the bad news. But that's like turning off your headlights when you're driving at night. The obstacle is still going to be there. It's just instead of noticing it going, darn, I need to find another way around. You're going to run into it and go out of business. And so when I started seeing it like that, I got kind of excited about bad news. And I started more actively seeking it out because it's like, are you going to drive without your headlights? No. Are you going to build a business without knowing where the problems are? Like, no, that would be crazy. And so I, I want to see the problems as soon as I can, not so that I can give up, but so that I can find a different path to my destination. B2B, that might even mean entering a different, you know, a different industry, different customer segment, or it might mean instead of talking to the middle managers, you're either talking to the frontline staff like Slack did, or you're talking to the executives. You know, there's there's different angles of attack for these things. And you want to know that plan A isn't working so that you can find plan B. I, I really like this so much because I think that many of us, we get so attached to our idea early on and excited about it that we purposely avoid things that could bring pain because we don't want to feel that that like our stomach drop, right? Like of like, oh no, somebody doesn't like it. Like this is what I want to do. But here's the thing, like you're saying, if you know this early on versus later, you're gonna have a lot less heartache early on when you realize that maybe this isn't the right idea. Maybe you need to pivot or make a little bit of a, a transition into something else. Knowing that up front is so much better than finding out years down the road when it could really hurt you financially, it could hurt your relationships. It could really mess things up for you. So going ahead and being bold and having faith in yourself to go ahead and ask these tough questions early on is going to save and serve you so much. So I'm glad that we talked about that, Rob. And uh, moving into this, Liz, we're bringing, coming to the end of our time here. So I want to ask about something just in the fourth chapter of the book that I found really interesting. We've kind of been talking about it a little bit throughout. We talk about keeping it casual. So before we end, do you have any final thought on this idea of keeping it casual? Yeah. The more formal you come across, the more the other party is going to feel like it's a sales or a negotiation conversation. And 
if you can make it feel casual, like the way you would talk to a friend, I, I mean, I keep harping on this metaphor, but it's a true metaphor and it runs deep. Like the, the more casual you can make it, the more comfortable they're going to be exposing their own weaknesses and failures and problems and frustrations. And those weak spots are the places where a product or a business can get a foothold. If someone's life is perfect and they're unwilling to tell you where it isn't, then how in the world are you going to help them? Right? This applies to both individuals and businesses. But if you can create a context where they're comfortable and they go, honestly, it's a debacle. We don't know what we're doing. We've tried everything and it's still not working. Suddenly, wow, that is a fertile field, you know, and you can you can find all sorts of uh, I'm mixing metaphors here, but it's like it's full of treasure, right? It's full of problems that you can build a pro product around. And I, I noticed this more so in uh, one of the problems with doing remote interviews in kind of the COVID world is that they're a little bit more formal always because you have to set them up around an agenda in, in person, which is why the vision framing weakness pedestal ask becomes so important. You do that in your email and also at the beginning of the conversation. But when I was doing uh, Custep in person, my team used to joke that I was doing cocktail customer development because I often had a drink in my hand because I like to do it at bars. Nice. Uh, I was in London at the time and like business at the pub is, is a very acceptable culture there. And so I would always try to meet people. They'd say, come to my office. And I'd be like, oh, there's a great pub just around the, the just down the road from your office. Let's meet there instead. And just by switching a cafe works fine, too, if you're not a drinker or if that's not OK in your, your country. Um, just switching out of like the shiny boardroom into the, the messy cafe or pub, suddenly I noticed I was getting so much better information. Their shields were down. They weren't treating it like a negotiation where they needed to keep their secrets close. They'd be like, oh yeah, this is our budget. We spent a fortune on this, it's ridiculous. And I'm like, why are you telling me this? You would never tell me this if I'd come into your office. And it's like the, the online version of that is just being, it's being human. It's being friendly. It's taking an interest in them. I love that, man. So keep it casual. Uh, Rob, I've already said this, but I think you're brilliant. I think you're a genius. Uh, I really enjoyed this time with you today. So thank, thank you so much for being a guest and sharing with the listeners today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, thanks, for, thanks for having me and thanks everyone for listening. I've had a lot of great conversations on the Creating a Brand podcast, but I have to say this was one of my favorites. Rob's mindset behind asking better questions is something that I found beyond valuable, and I'm already starting to see results in my business because I'm asking better questions. I encourage you to grab a copy of this book or at the very least listen to this episode again to make sure that you really understand everything that Rob shared with us. Rob, thank you again for being a guest and helping us all to ask better questions. For links to Rob Fitzpatrick's book, The Mom Test, and for links to his business that supports independent nonfiction authors, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 132. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week.